Amen. Amen. Hey, if you have a Bible with you, we'd love for you to open the passage we just read. Uh, If you've not caught up with us right now, we're going to be in a teaching series on the book of Acts. Uh, And so go ahead and grab your Bible right now if you're watching online or if you're here with us in the room. uh, We'll give you a little bit of a house light here to make sure you're able to look at the words uh, and know what's being taught about tonight here in Acts chapter 1. Really, the book of Acts is, um, as Pastor Brian Williams was talking about last week, it's really the acts of the Holy Spirit, like what the Holy Spirit was doing in and through the early church. What we're going to look at tonight as we think about Acts chapter 1 is this early church and sort of the earliest days of the birth of this church that strangely enough lives on into the 21st century to the point where here on on July 15th, we're standing here in 2021 in a church, right? And so tonight I want to talk about the church and the way I want to talk about the church is by pointing to and looking at the birth of the church in the book of Acts. It's a little like this. If you've ever been in like a a long-term relationship, I'd say long-term, like a year or longer, what starts to happen really quickly in the relationship is you miss and forget about all sorts of moments. Like there were all sorts of moments that happened in your relationship and yet you totally forgot about them. But what almost never happens is that no one forgets about the beginning of the relationship. The first text message he sent, the first time the two of you got together for coffee, the first time you started flirting, the first time you had feelings, the first time you told someone late at night that you have a crush on this other person. Listen, we tend to remember the birth of things. It's the same with my kids. There's all sorts of stories and memories and things that I've totally forgotten about until I see photos. But if you asked me in this moment, I could tell you exactly what it was like the night Grace was born. I could tell you exactly what it was like the night Noah was born. You remember the birth of things because when something's birthed, When something's brought into the world for the first time, when something new begins, there's something powerful about that foundation story. Listen, that's what the book of Acts is. The book of Acts shows how the Holy Spirit is building and birthing this brand new thing called the church of Jesus Christ. And so in this few weeks that we're looking at the book of Acts, our job is not just to say, okay, that was a cool thing for the early church, but it's to learn something about what the church in the earliest days tells us about what our church should be today. Now, I want to be careful about this. And where I want to be careful is there's a phrase that's used from time to time. And that phrase used by Christians, sometimes even in churches, is a phrase that goes something like this, that our job is to figure out what the early church was like and then go GB just like the early church. Like to read the book of Acts and then to be like, okay, we need to be just like the church in the book of Acts. But I want to open tonight by actually saying that I don't think that's right. I want to say clearly that our mission is not to be just like the early church. There's at least two reasons for that. The first is when you read the Bible, what you'll actually learn is the early church was far from perfect. In fact, almost every letter in the New Testament written by Paul is rebuking something terrible, horrible, bad, and wrong going on in an early church, going on in the ancient church. So the early church wasn't this perfect church that's a model for how we're supposed to do church. The early church was just as broken and messed up and dysfunctional as the church in the 21st century, but God still did his great work through that. Anyone else relieved by that? Anyone else relieved by the fact that the early church was completely messed up and yet God used it to great effect? And I look around the world at the church today and I see all kinds of dysfunction and I realize God's still working. Like God's not just going to be hindered by the fact that the church is messed up. And so hear me, our mission is not to be just like the early church. Here is our mission as a church today. Our mission is to be a faithful church in our generation, to be a faithful church in 2021, to be faithful to the truths of the Bible, to be faithful to the gospel, to be faithful to God, but to instantiate ourselves as a church in Westlake Village in the 21st century. 
Listen, the goal isn't to be just like the early church. The early church wasn't perfect. And the early church didn't live in our culture. They didn't have our problems. They didn't have the things that we need to address as a church. So tonight, our job is to look at the story of the ancient church. This story you just heard about how they had to pick someone to replace Judas. And I actually think there's plenty we're going to see tonight from the early church. And our goal is not to be just like them. But our goal is to learn what was important to them. So what was important to them can be important to us here as a church in 2021. I'll show you what I mean. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 12, it says this. It says, then... So then is immediately following verse 11, where Jesus ascends into heaven. He is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It says, then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day walk away from the city. Now, now the book of Acts uses the strange phrase, a Sabbath day walk. And here's what it actually was. In the Bible, the Sabbath was the day that you're not supposed to do any work on. And so here's what they had to wrestle through in the ancient world, not in the Bible, but some of the texts that were written after the Bible. They had to ask the question, if you're not allowed to work on the Sabbath, how long are you allowed to walk on the Sabbath before it becomes work? So it was this like really interesting intellectual question, and the answer came down to like a couple of miles. And after a couple of miles, it became work. And so when it says they had a Sabbath day walk away from the city, it means they walked a few miles into Jerusalem. And here's what I want to point out. The apostles returned from Jesus saying, you will be my witnesses in Judea, Samaria, and Jerusalem, Samaria to the ends of the earth. The apostles walk away from that and they immediately go back to a place. They immediately go back to Jerusalem. And again, this is easy to just blow by immediately, but I actually think it's important that the apostles didn't just wander around the known world trying to tell people about Jesus. They went to Jerusalem. They went from the hill called the Mount of Olives into the city. In other words, what the apostles understood very early on, the leaders of the early church understood that their mission wasn't just to kind of wander aimlessly into the world, but it was to care about a particular place, a particular city, and in their case, that city was called Jerusalem. And so here's what I want to stop and think about. I want to give three observations about the early church, about the local church, based on what we see here. Three observations about what we just saw here in this text that will help us think about it. Because if it's true that they didn't just want to kind of wander around telling people about Jesus, but rather went to a specific place, I want us to think deeply about what that means for us. Here's the first thing I think that means. I think it means that a local church should have compassion for the people who live around it. Like in other words, the apostles, the disciples, the first followers of Jesus, we'll see there's about 120 of them. Those people didn't just kind of like look around the world and judge everyone and look down on everyone. Those people planted themselves in Jerusalem and believed that God was calling them to build their church in Jerusalem. And so they had compassion for the people around them. What does that mean for us today in Westlake Village? Here's what I think it means at least. If we're going to have a church in Westlake Village... We as a church must be committed to having compassion and not critique and criticism of all the people around us. Uh, listen, it's really easy to come to a church in a wealthy, affluent suburb of Los Angeles like Westlake Village and to look down on everyone around you. Plenty of people do this. They look down on people in Westlake Village. They look down on people for their wealth, their privilege, their status, and their fame. And it's very easy to do this. It's very easy to like glorify a church that's in some other place that's not wealthy and privileged and elite. But here's what a church has to do. A church needs to look at people around us in their nice cars, in their gated neighborhoods, in their privilege, in their wealth, in their fame, 
And rather than look down upon those people, we need to have compassion for them. Because I need you to hear me on this. The only hope for wealthy, famous, powerful, privileged people is Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead. That's it. That's the only hope. The hope for the wealthy, privileged, powerful person that lives within 10 miles of here is the same hope for the destitute person who lives far away from this place. We need to have compassion for those rather than looking down on them and criticizing them, rather than turning up our nose at a community that's built around us. See, listen, there is no other church in this world that should be reaching the people in Westlake Village. There's no other church that's been assigned to it other than the churches that are here. And it's Calvary and a handful of other churches. And then when you go to the Caneo Valley, there's other great, amazing, gospel-preaching, Bible-believing churches. But our job is not to judge those around us, but rather to have compassion. Here's number two. A local church should contextualize its methods to the culture around us. What does that mean? It means that in the ancient church, they contextualized the ministry they did to the city of Jerusalem. And our job in our day is to contextualize the ministry we do to the city of Westlake Village and the Conejo Valley in general. So what that means is that we need to be a distinctly Conejo Valley Westlake Village church rather than trying to be some other kind of church that you've seen on the internet. So from time to time, someone sees like a hip, cool Los Angeles church that's doing like real hip, cool stuff. And listen, even this morning, I was on a website of a church down in LA. And I was like, ah, oh, this is such a cool website. These are such cool people. I don't dress as cool as them, talk as cool as them. But here's what I realized. It's not our job to be a downtown LA church because we're not a downtown LA place. We're a different kind of place. And the job for our church is not to try to be like some other church in some other place but rather to be a contextual church for what happens here in this place. From time to time, I've taken students all over the world to mission trips, to different countries all over the place, from Uganda to Central America uh, to Ukraine, different places all over the world. And every time there's questions of, well, why can't we do church like this? Like in Uganda, they do church services that are like four and a half hours long, okay? Here's what happens in Uganda. They'll have a guy come up and preach, and he'll preach like a 50-minute sermon, hour-long sermon. He'll sit down. They'll sing a few songs. They'll bring someone else up and have him preach a second sermon, and they'll just keep rolling. And at times, it's really, really cool, and I've heard the question, why can't we just do that here? Because that's not our context. Like, our job is to be a church in our context for our people, for 21st century Western American. And again, not to look down on that and say, oh, that's the worst but rather to say, how can we be a church that's uniquely suited and uniquely positioned to reach people in Westlake Village? That's gonna go into how we program and when we do service times and what kind of room we're in and what kind of thing we do when we gather. But again, the local church is not supposed to judge the people living around it. A local church is supposed to care about them, have compassion for them. And then finally, a local church should exist for the good of the city around it. Listen, hear me, from time to time, the local church will be prophetic toward the power structures of this world. From time to time, the church will speak out about issues that are important to the church. But the principal job of the church is not to be a thorn in the side of the city it serves and loves. The principal job of the church is to serve and love and wash the feet of those around us, to care about people, to love people, to serve people. This has come to the fore in the midst of the last year and a half where there are all kinds of questions about what a church should or shouldn't do. And the answer is the church should exist for the good of the people around it. Not to simply be a thorn in its side, but rather to serve and to wash the feet of, to care about and love the people around. Again, this story begins with the earliest Christians going into this city that they loved and cared about called Jerusalem and beginning their church, their local church there. Well, let me go on to verse 13. It says, when they arrived... 
they went upstairs to a room where they were staying. Those present, and these are going to be the apostles, were Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, the son of Alphys, Alphys, and, sorry, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together in constant prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled. So here's what's happening. Jesus dies, he rises from the dead, he ascends into heaven. This is the first time the church is getting together since Jesus has ascended into heaven and given them a mission. And here's what they do. They do three things in this moment. They do three things in this moment. In this exact text, the first gathering of the local church, I'm going to observe just a few things that happen here. Um, and, and I want us to just see what that might mean for us as we're a church today. So three essentials for the church, um, three essentials for the church in every generation. Number one, that part of being the church is gathering as the church. So um, I grew up in a church that from time to time talked about um, on certain Sundays, we're going to cancel church so that we can go be the church. And what they meant is we're not going to gather here as a church, but rather we're going to go into the community and love and serve and help people. And that phrase, while well-intentioned, I think misses the point of what church is. Listen, we don't go be the church, and then when we're here, it's something else. I want us to understand that part of being the church is gathering as the church, gathering as the Lord's people, singing together, breaking bread in communion together, sitting under the teaching of the word of God. There's something that happens here that is essential to what it means to be the church. We don't cancel church to go be the church. When you leave here, it's not that you're going to go be the church. It's that you're always the church when you're gathered here or when you're out in the community. The very first thing that the apostles and the followers of Jesus, 120 of them did, after Jesus ascended into heaven, is they gathered together. And then here's the second thing I'd note. The gathering has always included Bible teaching and prayer. So this gathering they did had prayer. It said they were constantly in prayer. And then Peter gets up and says the scripture had to be fulfilled. He reads the scripture and he helps them understand what that means. Bible teaching and prayer is at the heartbeat of what a healthy church does. Like as a church, there's a million other things we'll do. In the book of Acts, there are a million other things they'll do. But at the heartbeat of a healthy church is Bible teaching and prayer. Prayer says we're going to rely on God, have a relationship with him, cry out to him in speaking and in singing and in all these different things. And Bible teaching says we're going to be a place, a church that sits under the authority of what God has to say. And then finally... I want to note that prayer is the heartbeat of a healthy church. Prayer is the heartbeat of a healthy church. I want us to know that prayer is a barometer of the heartbeat of your health as a Christian. Okay, can I just challenge someone tonight? If your prayer life is lackluster, I want to challenge you to understand that your spiritual life is lackluster. Prayer is not an optional element. Prayer is not some sort of side dish that you can choose or not choose. Prayer is the heartbeat of what it means to have a relationship with God. Like someone who says, well, I don't have much of a prayer life, but I love studying the Bible and I show up at church and I serve people. It would be like me saying, listen, my wife and I never talk, but I do the dishes for her and I read, I read text messages from her all the time. We've just never spoken face to face in the last month, but we're doing great together. It's not the case. Listen, prayer is the heartbeat of a healthy relationship with God. And then on the church level, listen, prayer is the heartbeat of a healthy church. And can I just try to bring us back to something? Many of you, we're not here when this, this young adult thing we have going on was starting. 
So you see, for years, Calvary was trying to do something with young adults, and um, oftentimes we'd start something and it would fail, or we'd start something and try to get it going, and it didn't quite work out the way we hoped. But then in 2016, like, the Holy Spirit of God just did something, okay? Uh, like, there were these people that just started coming into our church, and some of our core leaders, even folks on staff here, who, who just kind of came together, and God brought them together in this moment, and young adults started becoming something that people wanted to come to. It was this thing. It was this movement. But here's what it was based on. It was based on prayer. Like we were young and we were scrappy and we didn't have any resources. We didn't have any money. We didn't have anything at all. But it was just like prayer before the service. It was prayer during the service. It was people praying for one another. After the service, it was people praying for one another. It was like you could not come to YA without prayer being like a massive part of your evening. And can I just say this out loud? I think we may have slipped from that. And I don't think that's anyone's fault. And if it's anyone's fault, it's my fault, right? As the leader in the room. But like we, we just may have slipped from that. And maybe the pandemic where we couldn't pray face-to-face or there was a time where we were separated. There's a thousand reasons we could give, right? But I want to stand here tonight and call us as a community back to prayer, to this desperate kind of prayer where we just say, Lord, if you don't show up in this house tonight, it's a waste of time. God, if we don't encounter you and know you personally and intimately, if we're not abiding in your presence, God, I don't even want to waste my time. I want to call us back to prayer. Can I just encourage you, um, every single Thursday night, 6 p.m., we have a prayer team that meets. And some of you need to just decide you're going to be a part of that prayer team. You don't need to sign up. You don't need to let us know. Maybe you do. I'm just saying it. Just show up, 6 o'clock. Just be there, 6 o'clock, right outside here, where you just pray and seek the Lord and plead and intercede on behalf of people you may never meet, that they would encounter the God of the universe who saves. I want to encourage you to do that. I want to encourage you when we talk about the prayer wall in the next set of worship, that you don't just kind of blow that off, but you go right over there and you humble yourself and you write out a prayer and you say, God, I'm desperate for you. Listen, young adults, I want to call us back to prayer. I want to call us back to being a community that's desperate for prayer, that prays for one another, that prays with one another. I want to challenge you this. You know, the big thing, growth curve in my own life has been, um, I'm trying to not say the words, I'll pray for you ever again. And that may sound weird as a pastor, right? Because like, that's my job. But here's what I try to do. I try to say the words, can we pray right now? Because that means so much more. That's an actual moment. Like I'll pray for you is as like nothing as like hope you have a good day, right? Like, okay, your hopes, whatever. Like prayer, pray for one another in the lobby. Stop, pray right then. When I'm texting someone, I try not to say I'll pray for you. I tried to say I, was, I, I stopped and prayed for you right now. And here's what I prayed for you. Anyway, why? I want to call us back to being a people where prayer is the heartbeat of our healthy church, where prayer is not some optional side dish to what happens here on Thursday night, but is rather the core of who we are. Join the prayer team, go to the prayer wall, stop and pray over someone in the lobby. May we as Calvary Community Church be known as a house of prayer. It goes on this way in verse 16. Peter says the scripture must be fulfilled, right? And then he goes on to say this, in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. So here's what I want to point out. Peter is teaching the word of God, and then he says something that's really interesting about your Bible and about my Bible. Something really interesting about the word of God. He says in this scripture that he's about to read, he says the Holy Spirit spoke. Which means like the scripture is God speaking. And yet what does it say? The Holy Spirit spoke a long time ago through David. Like King David. 
So here's this wild and interesting thing that we believe about the Bible. And this is so important, especially if you're not a Christian, if you're just tuning in tonight or you're not even sure you believe this. I want you to know what we believe as a church about the Bible. And this verse explains it well. I want to explain it in this way. I want to give you two errors to avoid when it comes to the Bible. Two errors that I don't want you to slip into. And here's the first one. The first one is that the Bible is merely human reflections on God. We don't believe the Bible is just a few people who were inspired by God and what they saw, writing down what they saw, thinking, wow, God's pretty great, and here's what I have to say about this. Like, in other words, we do not believe the Bible is merely or simply a human book. It is not just simply the people who love God writing about him. But then here's the second error, and I think actually people who grew up in church tend to make this second error a little more. The second error is this, that the Bible dropped out of heaven or dropped out of the sky from God. So the idea is like the Bible just kind of came to us and we discovered it. And that's what Mormons believe. It's what some Muslims believe. But like it is not what Christians believe. Like Mormons are going to talk about the, the Book of Mormon and the tablets that were revealed from God and translated. And this is exactly how it comes. This is not how the Bible came together. Like Christians, we do not believe the Bible just dropped out of the sky on us. We believe this. We believe what it says in 1 Peter, and I want to show you this verse. It says prophecy, in other words, what comes from God, it says never has its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Uh, Like in other words, here's what we believe about the Bible. It's not merely a human book. It's not just God speaking and no human involvement. Somehow these people are carried along by the human spirit and it fits together. In other words, here's how I would say it. It's that the words of the Bible are fully human, and fully divine. The words of the Bible are fully human and fully divine. And if that sounds bizarre and kind of like a weird thing to you, can I just remind you that that is exactly what we say about Jesus. Jesus was fully human and fully divine. The word of God in Christ is fully human and fully divine. The word of God in the Bible is fully human and fully divine. It goes on this way in verse 18. It says, with the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. And there he fell headlong. His body burst open and all of his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this. So they called that field in their language, Akeldma. Okay, listen, I've said this before. If you're ever reading the Bible and you don't know how to pronounce something, it makes you normal, right? Uh, Because there's confusing things. It just does. Uh, That is the field of blood. Now, let's talk about Judas for a second. If you don't know the Bible storyline, you don't know the Jesus story, Jesus had 12 guys who were following him. His 12 original disciples were with him from the beginning. They walked with him. They saw all the miracles, all of Jesus' teachings. And then one of those men, named Judas, betrayed Jesus over to the Romans. He gave Jesus up, said, this is where Jesus is going to be. Come arrest him. Jesus gets arrested, ultimately sentenced to death, dies on the cross, and is laid in the grave, only to raise again three days later. But obviously this individual, Judas, was not welcomed back into the club. In fact, this individual, Judas, is ultimately going, he's going to hang himself. He is going to kill himself. And the disciples are having to face this reality that they have been betrayed by one of their closest followers, that one of the 12 people who was closest to Jesus, one of the 12 people who was supposed to lead the early church has failed, has betrayed them, and has fallen from grace. And the early church in their very first gathering they ever did after Jesus ascended into heaven, had to make or had to figure out what to do with the failure of one of their key leaders. Like, don't miss this tonight. I want you to understand that leadership failure is as old as the church. 
Leadership failure is as old as the church. And here's what I want you to know. I want you to know that Christian leaders failing, falling from grace, sinning, destroying their lives, disqualifying themselves from ministries is not some new thing that happens in the 21st century. It is as old as the church itself. Judas is one of the key followers and leaders. Jesus, Jesus trusts Judas, loves Judas. And Judas fails. Judas fails. Leadership failure is as old as the church. And listen, this is part of so many of our stories. It's part of my story. I grew up at a church that loved me and I loved and I was there all the time. I met Jesus there. I grew in the faith there. I could not imagine my life without that church. And yet a year or two after I left that church and went to college, I found out that there was a moral scandal that destroyed the church. Two pastors, one male, one female, had an inappropriate relationship with one another, and that church, a decade later, still hasn't recovered. It was devastating. And then maybe some of you don't know this. Like you're sitting here in Calvary Community Church, and some of you are aware, but some of you aren't aware that our church has walked through moral failure. Of our senior pastor, back in the early 2000s, a senior pastor here at this church, whom failed morally, had affairs outside of his marriage, destroyed the trust and destroyed this church. Like moral failure isn't something out there. It's something I've walked through. It's something this church has walked through. And then if you pay attention to the news at all, you don't even have to be a part of the Christian subculture to hear names like Bill Hybels or Ravi Zacharias or Carl Lenz who have failed morally. And I want us to think for a moment because Judas fails morally here. And so do so many pastors and leaders and Christian influencers in our world today. And here's what I want us to think about for just a moment tonight. I want us to think about what the right response is to leadership failure in the church. Because my suspicion is before this time next year rolls around, you'll hear another name. There'll be another person who you looked up to or listened to their sermons or read their books or cared about their worship music that utterly collapsed under the weight of moral failure. And I want us to think tonight about how we're supposed to respond to this because this is the first thing the church had to do. Here's number one. Number one, I want us to grieve with and support those who have been wounded. Every time there's a leadership failure, someone has been wounded. Anytime there's a senior pastor who has an affair with someone who sleeps with someone who's not his wife, someone is wounded, including his wife and his children and most likely the person he slept with, the person he abused, the person he manipulated. Abuse and manipulation and shame and power in the church are a terrible problem that we have to face. And the first thing we wanna do when we hear about someone who falls is not think about them, but to think about those that they've wounded though they hurt. Some of you have maybe walked through the pain and the anguish of being hurt by a church leader. And the first thing we want to do when someone falls is grieve with and support those who've been wounded. Number two, we want to understand the multitude of factors. Uh-oh, okay, there we go. Understand the multitude of factors that contributed to the failure. It's really easy when a pastor falls or does something wrong to point at that pastor and go, see, they were a jerk, they were the worst, they were a sinner. It's easy to point at a person. But almost every time there's a failure of someone who's in ministry, there's not just a failure of an individual, but a whole system around them that enabled them or covered up evidence or somehow didn't hold them accountable. And what we want to do as thinking Christians, when there is a moral failure of someone who calls themselves as a believer, is not just point the finger at the person, but rather blame them for their crimes, but also understand what happened around them. Number three, I want us to recognize that God can bring good fruit from bad trees. I told you that the church I grew up in had two pastors who morally disqualified themselves, who blew up their life and blew up their church and caused pain and heartache in 
so many different ways. And yet I'm just never gonna stand here and deny that I met Jesus at that church. I'm never gonna stand here and deny that God blessed me through that church, taught me the Bible through that church. I'm never gonna deny the good that came from that church. It's easy to look at a moral failure of a church or of a pastor and then to discount everything they ever wrote or said or did at a church. And I know that's a tempting thing, but I wanna tell you that I am someone who's walked through the pain of a church that is utterly blown up. And I want you to know God still blessed me through it. That's the mercy and the kindness of our God, that even when human leaders fail, God can still bring good fruit from that. Listen, Calvary walked through just a disastrous season in the early 2000s, and yet God still brought fruit through that, and God still looks upon people who sin and still looks upon that and sees that for the horror that it is. And yet I want us to know God can bring good fruit through bad trees. Number, number four, I want us to repent of any ways we have idolized church leaders. Can I just speak to you specifically tonight, you listening online? If you ever set a Christian leader, pastor, preacher, or influencer on a pedestal, you are setting yourself up for disappointment. I think part of what breaks our hearts is sometimes we see these Christian leaders fail and we were certain that they weren't people just like us. We were certain that they were some kind of superstar Christian or mega Christian and we were just normal Christians. But I want us to look at any ways we've idolized anyone any preacher or pastor or teacher in our life or in our world, the person who's on your podcast feed, the person you follow on Instagram, whoever you've set up as the ultimate Christian influencer in your life, I want you to know that that person is a human being, just like you are. And anytime a leader fails, we need to kind of re-examine our heart and go, have we just kind of bought into this idolization of this other individual? And then here's the fifth and final thing I want us to do. I want us to remember that God is faithful when leaders are not. Uh, Like the entire history of the Christian church is the history of imperfect people executing God's perfect plan, of failures and of moments of pain and heartache and ways the church has failed utterly. But our God has been faithful even when human beings are not. If you hear nothing else tonight, I just want you to remember that the very first thing the church had to deal with after Jesus ascended into heaven was leadership failure. They had to deal with the fact that one of theirs, Judas, failed miserably. It goes on this way in verse 20. It says, For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, may no one dwell in it, may another take his place of leadership. So here's what happens. Judas is off the scene. Judas has taken his own life, which is this this heart-wrenching reaction and reality that Judas takes his own life. And now they have a problem. And the problem is that they need 12 people to lead the church, and they've only got 11 In other words, they have an open spot, and now here's what they decide. They need someone to take his place of leadership. They've got 11 guys, they need 12, and they need to pick someone. And I want us to consider this as we think about our place and our purpose within the church. And I want you, every single person in this room or listening online tonight to recognize this, that when there is an open spot in the church, when there is a need for leadership, when there is a need for someone to step in, there is probably no greater opportunity for you to grow in your faith. I'll say that again, when there is an open spot, a need, a leadership ask, where there's something someone needs you to step into, there are a few things that will make you grow more in your faith. I'll say it this way, that the best way to become more like Jesus is to serve like Jesus, to step into opportunities that are given to you, to respond to an invitation, to step into a ministry, step into a leadership role, to do something with your faith rather than just show up. We mentioned this at the beginning of the service, but um, one of the goals when we really got 
young adults, this Thursday night thing up and running, um, was really that we would be a place where we could gather in worship. And we thought gathering in worship was so important. And so many people told us like, no, the way to run a young adults ministry is just like have a coffee shop and like chat about things. And we were like, no, okay? So we decided worship was gonna be like the heartbeat of what we do, worship and the teaching of the word. And we knew this was gonna happen on Thursday nights and it started growing. And then the question became, okay, should I go on Thursday nights and go on Sundays? And we know that everyone here is different, and some of you actually attend other churches, and some of you serve here on Thursdays, but we came up with a paradigm, and we want this paradigm to be true of young adults. And here's the paradigm, that we want you to worship on Thursday and serve on Sunday. We want you to worship on Thursday and serve on Sunday. Again, I know some of you serve on Thursday nights. Some of you are busy, you work on Sundays. Some of you go to another church on Sunday, and praise God for other churches like that. But if you are here and you want to know what is our goal or our aim or our purpose, it is that you would worship here on Thursday night and that you would serve somewhere on a Sunday morning. That you wouldn't just kind of like do church here and just kind of receive some things and then move along with your life. But rather, you would worship on Thursday, serve on Sunday. And again, when I say serve on Sunday, I don't just mean like vaguely try to be helpful. I mean like you step into a leadership role. They needed 12 apostles. They had 11 and they needed someone to step into that role. And let me tell you something. There are ministries all over this church that are desperate for people to step into roles. Like, I'll just say it this way. I've been at this church on staff 11 years. I have never seen the ministries of this church more in need of people to step into leadership roles. During COVID, all sorts of key leaders moved away, left us, went to other places, moved out of the state. We have just been decimated when it comes to leaders. And so if the Holy Spirit's just kind of been prompting you over the last couple months, like it's time for you to get involved with church, there has never been a more important time for you to step into the leadership of this church. Let me give you a few examples. When it comes to young adults, we can talk about it this way. There's a prayer team. We got our worship team, our tech team. We have a welcome team. We have people who do all sorts of things, just kind of setting up and making the night awesome. We have small group leadership teams where people run small group Bible studies throughout the year. And we need people who are willing to step up and step in to worship on Thursdays, but also to choose to serve with our young adult ministries. We talk about our family ministries. Our family ministries is early childhoods, like the little babies, uh, elementaries and middle school and high school ministry and special abilities. They are desperate for men and women who will step in and disciple and lead and care for young lives and young souls, just like someone did for some of you when you were that age. Listen, for some of you, maybe you need to start worshiping on Thursdays, but you need to start serving with the littlest of the babies, including my own kids on Sunday mornings, or or on middle school ministry, or with our high school ministry, or or to serve somewhere in our church. There's other ministries. There's church-wide ministries I can talk about, like our parking lot ministry, which you might see as like, who needs a parking lot ministry? The person who pulls into Calvary Community Church and is super overwhelmed because there's thousands of people there, and they haven't been to church for years, but the first person they see is smiling and waving and welcoming them in. Like, again, you may just blow it off because you're so used to church, but these people serve, and they're the first touch of Calvary. Our ushers, our greeters, local outreach, people who serve homeless and hungry people who need clothing and food, global missions and men's and women's ministry and small group leadership for the church as a whole. Listen, there are a million places you could plug in. The needs are great. Like, I don't always say this. I'm just standing here right now telling you, I talk to pastors of ministries all over this church And the repeated refrain is, there's more ministry need than there are ministers. I'm just looking at you tonight saying, this is your moment. 
If the Holy Spirit's been tugging on your heart, I want this to be your moment where you say, you know what, just like there were 11 apostles, but they needed 12, I'm going to step into that slot. I'm going to fill that leadership. You see, here's what I've learned about church. I've learned that there's kind of two ways to look at church. A friend of mine, Drew Sams, who used to be the high school and teaching pastor here, and now he's a senior pastor at Bel Air Church down in Los Angeles, used to put it this way. I love the metaphor he did. He said, most people, and maybe some of you, maybe some of you online tonight, look at church and think of it like a vending machine. So like, here's how you see church. And you're like, you know what I want today? I want, oh, that gyro song, that was so good right there. So you just kind of plug it in. And you're like, I want to come occasionally, but then I'll listen to the podcast sometimes. And then if I really need something, I'll call up the pastor. And so what you do is you just kind of pick and choose what you want. And then you throw in some money occasionally just to kind of like get the services and goods you want. And here's what we all know. Like that is not the biblical vision of church. The biblical vision of church isn't you throw a few bucks at us and we give you religious goods and services. He says the church is not a vending machine. Here's what he always said. The church is a refrigerator. Here's what he meant. A refrigerator, what do you do? You take stuff out, but what else do you do? You put stuff in. Sometimes you clean it. Sometimes you have to replace the filter. Sometimes you have to reorganize things because it's getting a little full. When you have a fridge at your house, you're invested in it, you're bought into it, you care about it. If a vending machine's broken, you go, someone will fix it. If your fridge is broken, you figure out how to fix it. And here was this point, and I think it's so well said. Calvary, may we treat our church not as a vending machine, but as our fridge, as our home, as our people, as our family. We're, we're gonna receive stuff from it, right? Like you're going to receive biblical teaching or times of worship. You're going to receive all sorts of wonderful things from this church. But let's always be a people who are going to invest into the church. To never be people who say we're just going to throw a little bit of money at the church and then get the religious goods and services we want. No, we're going to invest in it. We're going to take ownership of it. And listen, if you hear nothing else from me tonight, can I just stop and tell you there are opportunities like you would not believe in every ministry of our church. I'm just begging you to listen to the Holy Spirit if the Holy Spirit's saying go. Like tonight, let this be the night where you just decide you're going to be in. And then if the question is, okay, how do I get involved? The answer is like, go on the website, find an email address, ask me, talk to Brian, find someone you know who's serving. Like there's a thousand different ways for you to get involved. I'm not trying to be flippant. I'm just trying to say, if you want to get involved, find it, hunt it down. Say, the Holy Spirit is telling me that I need to get involved, that I need to serve, that I need to love, that I need to not just like have a heart of service, but I need to actually put that into action. Here's how the scripture is going to close tonight. Verse 21 says this. It says, it is necessary for us to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning with John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us to his resurrection. It goes on this way in verse 23. So they nominated two men. In other words, they got 11 guys, they need 12 guys, and they need to do like a nomination process. So they nominate these two guys. Joseph, called Barsabbas, also known as Justice. It's amazing. He got three names. And Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two men you have chosen over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left and to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, okay? Casting lots in the Bible means they rolled dice to figure out. Now the Bible never commands us to cast dice. Like if you're trying to decide which college to go to, it's not like, all right, Lord, let me know. 
Don't, don't do that. Like, like this is just what they did and this is how they made this decision and yet God was sovereign over the dice, sovereign over the decision and it says, and the lot fell to Matthias. So he was added to the 11 apostles. And here's what happens. Matthias is added to the 11 apostles. He goes on to do ministry with the apostles and the apostles begin planting churches and telling people about Jesus. They're going all over the known world proclaiming that Jesus Christ died for sins and rose from the dead for resurrection in the resurrection for sinners like you and me. This is what Matthias does. He's part of this entire movement of Jesus followers who go and tell the world about Jesus and plant churches and proclaim the forgiveness of sins that's available to everyone, including you and me. And you know what's remarkable about this? What's remarkable is that because of their efforts, because of what they do, the name of Jesus was known throughout the world. People started to know Jesus in places that had never heard of Jesus. By the time the disciples, the original apostles, are all dead and gone, the gospel has made it all the way to Spain, all the way to Rome, all the way to India. The Bible, the gospel has gone all throughout the world. Listen, the name of Jesus is known throughout the world. But can I tell you something else that happened? The name of Matthias was almost entirely forgotten. You know how I know this? Because if I asked you tonight before you came into the church service, who was the 12th apostle who replaced Judas? Most of you would be like, ah, I don't know, right? You don't know him. He's not famous. We don't talk about him. We don't name churches after him. He's not a big deal. He's not a celebrity. He's not well known. Everyone forgot about his name, but everyone remembered the name of Jesus. Isn't that what you want for your life? It's what I want for my life. Like a hundred years from now, no one's going to care about Brian Howard. Praise Christ, Jesus will be reigning over all things. A hundred years from now, no one's going to know your name. And that's okay. But I want to live the type of life that I live where Jesus' name is known through my life, even if I am totally forgotten, because it probably will be. And when you stop thinking about your glory and your legacy and your life and your fame and your power and start thinking about Jesus, your whole life turns upside down. Listen, can I put it this way about Matthias? Like, we've all forgotten his name. No one knows him. He's not famous. He's not popular. But because Matthias, because people like Matthias were faithful in his generation, we can be faithful in ours. Because Matthias was faithful in his generation, he told people about Jesus. And then their kids told someone about Jesus, and their kids told someone about Jesus, all the way down through 20 centuries to the fact where you're here. And at some point, someone told you about Jesus because someone in a generation before you was faithful to tell them about Jesus. This is remarkable. This is how the gospel goes forth. Like, do you understand that the gospel doesn't just magically happen in the world? The gospel, the good news of who Jesus is, goes forth because we tell people about it. We tell the next generation about Jesus. This is the mission of the church, to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God, that Christ Jesus has been crucified for our sins and has rose, risen from the dead for our salvation. So here's where I want to leave us tonight to close. I want us to understand this, that the next generation will only know the good news of Jesus if our generation tells them about it. Like the next generation that comes after you. And I know for some of you in this room, you're like 18, 19, 20, 22 years old, and you're like, I'm the next generation. No, there's a next generation after you. Like I got kids who are three and one years old, and you know what? That generation will only know about Jesus if we tell them about it. And we have that mission, we have that responsibility that is on us to do. That is what the Holy Spirit drives us to do. It's like this, so earlier this morning, 
I took the morning to hang out with my kids. And it was so fun. We were playing on the floor and we were wrestling and we were playing like all sorts of games on the floor. And we were listening to, to, to Spotify. We were listening to this worship playlist. And it was kind of going through this playlist I had set. But then the playlist wrapped up. And then it started playing random songs. You know how Spotify is like, I know what you want today. And Spotify knew exactly what I needed today. It's so random to say, but this is exactly what happened this morning. I heard a song on Spotify this morning that I had not heard since I was in college. And it like stopped me in my tracks. Not because it was that good of a song, it really wasn't. But because I remember being in college. And I remember thinking, what's God going to do? How's God going to take care of me? Am I going to be a poor person who never eats food and dies on the street and unknown? Like, what's going to happen in my life? Is God ever going to come through for me? Like, I just remember being 20 or 22 years old, so stressed out and worried about my future and my life. And that song came on. And it was just like the Holy Spirit of God whispering to me, like, God, Brian, I've taken care of you every step of the way. Like, God's taking care of me. I was just thinking about that this morning as I'm preaching tonight. Some of you are 20 years old. Some of you are in college right now. Can I tell you the good news that Jesus cares about you enough to die on the cross for you so he cares about you enough to take care of your life after college? Someone in this room needs to hear tonight the good news that the same Jesus who died for you on the cross is gonna take care of you in everything. Like God's gonna take care of you. And some of you are so stressed out about the next season of life and what's gonna happen. God's got you. He's gonna take care of you. And can I ask a question? Does anyone in this room believe that truth tonight? Anyone believe that's true? That God takes care of us and he's good to us and he loves us and he's with us and he's for us and he's on our side. And here's what I need you to know. There's a world of people out there, a generation that comes after you that needs to know that too. And if you believe that to be true, you have a mission in this world. This is the mission of the church to declare the glories of our God and the mercies of our Christ. That's what we get to do to a generation that is desperate to know that there is a God who wants to take care of them, love them, save them, and ultimately call them his own. That's the invitation. What did the early church do? They did all kinds of things. They dealt with all kinds of messes. They sat under the teaching of the word. They prayed. They did all of this so that they could declare the glories of God and the mercies of Christ to a world in desperate need. I want to invite you toward that. I want to invite you toward prayer so that you can be filled up with the kind of power that allows you to be a minister of the gospel. And then once more, I want to challenge everyone in this room, if the Holy Spirit's tugging on your heart, find someone to talk to tonight. Say, how can I serve? How can I get involved? Who can I talk to? Who can I email? I want to serve. I want to step into a role. I know this is a moment for the church where we're going to step in and see God do great things in our church and in our time. And I want to invite you to be part of it because there is no way to become more like Jesus than to serve like him. In Calvary, may we always be a church of prayer. May we always be a church that serves just like Jesus served us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for tonight. Thank you for the opportunity to consider your word, to consider the truths of the scripture. God, thanks for the story of Matthias. It seems so random, and yet I read it, and I see all the hallmarks of what it means for us to be a church. God, help us to be a people who proclaim the glories of you, God, and the mercies of your son Jesus to a generation in desperate need. God, help us to be a people who love you, who serve you, who cry out to you in prayer. And above all, help us to be a people who love your gospel. We pray in Christ's name. And all God's people said real loud, amen.